Transmitting from the Mojave Wilderness in Joshua Tree, California. Now is the time for Desert Oracle Radio, the voice of the desert. Night has fallen on the desert. As the southwestern United States began to boom in population during World War II, a mythology of UFOs and alien life grew up alongside the sunbelt suburbs of America. Under clear, starry skies and surrounded by vast military bases, the new residents of sprawling cities such as Albuquerque, Phoenix, Las Vegas, and Los Angeles had to get used to the aspects of life unknown in the Midwest or on the East Coast. The adobe and Pueblo styles of architecture were adapted, along with the decorative arts, if not the spiritual culture of desert tribes. Roadrunners, scorpions, coyotes, and longhorn skulls became icons of the New West. And from the Lubbock lights to the strange craft buzzing around the Lockheed Skunk Works in Lancaster, the reality of wondrous sights in the open skies led to a new paranoid culture fueled by the Cold War and movie screen UFOs produced by L.A. science fiction writers. Intelligence agencies and defense contractors did not passively witness this new culture. Instead, the alphabet agencies and their black project corporate partners actively engaged with the contactees, the prophets, the pulp writers, encouraging belief in both benevolent space brothers and hostile invaders. When thousands of Americans began attending UFO conferences in the Mojave Desert, most notably at the Integratron builder George Van Tassel's compound at Giant Rock, spies from both Washington and Moscow mingled with the believers, planting new stories and new layers. And what rapidly became a pop religion for these unanchored citizens of the desert cities. Secret aircraft from the first U-2 and SR-71 Blackbird to modern stealth bombers and fighters were explained away as UFOs, especially when they crashed. Better to muddy the waters with outrageous tales than let classified details surface in daily newspapers and on the local television news. 
Watergate, the House Select Committee on Assassinations, and the Church Committee added sinister new elements to the flying saucer stories of the 1970s. If the U.S. government could assassinate its own people, its own leaders, or drive them to suicide with heavy dosages of hallucinogens, could they also be cooperating with extraterrestrial forces? The Roswell crash, only briefly noticed by the national media in 1947, and just as quickly forgotten when the Army explained their crashed flying disc as a failed weather balloon, was resuscitated in 1978 by a new group of UFO researchers ready to find a deeper conspiracy. In 1980, the first book-length examination of Roswell was published, 33 years after the events. The Roswell incident was credited to Charles Berlitz and William L. Moore, and more or less created the mythology that would inspire scores of movies, TV shows, additional books, and websites on the early internet. When a murky government source supplied Bill Moore with photographs of supposed World War II-era documents from a secret UFO task force in Washington called MJ-12, it fueled belief in government complicity in a long-term colonization effort by extraterrestrial civilizations. The 1980s brought new forms of media, dozens of cable channels, a fourth broadcast network, and the connection of millions of new personal computers to online bulletin boards, news groups, and early consumer services such as CompuServe and Genie. All ideal for spreading both sincere reports and what we now call fake news. Melodramatic syndicated series about government cover-ups of alien crashes in search of Arthur C. Clarke's Mysterious World, etc. led to 1980s primetime faux documentaries based mostly on fraudulent film and video. Movies and TV dramas made use of tropes from old UFO sightings and cover-ups. New eyewitness reports echoed the fictional stories. And a real-life character named Milton William Cooper made himself a prominent UFO researcher. Cooper, born in 1943 in Long Beach, California, served in the Navy during the Vietnam years and made a living at local technical schools before emerging with wild UFO conspiracies in the 1980s. By 1988, Cooper was, along with William Moore, part of a small group of middle-aged men who dominated the alien conspiracy scene. They appeared on television and late-night radio talk shows such as Billy Goodman's weeknight Las Vegas broadcast, which paved the way for Art Bell's mainstream success in the 1990s. 
and they were busy contributors to online message boards such as Paranet. Bill Cooper eventually blew his credibility within that insular scene and would find a new audience with his deeply paranoid New World Order conspiracies. His 1991 book, Behold a Pale Horse, became a guide for the militia movement, an inspiration to a young Alex Jones. The Illuminati-obsessed Texas radio host, who would later become an informal advisor to our 45th president. But before Bill Cooper changed his focus from aliens to the deeply paranoid and lonesome emptiness of middle-aged American men like himself, and before he died in a November 2001 shootout with sheriff's deputies in Apache County, Arizona, he added to his UFO work by popularizing the Krill Papers credited to the mysterious O.H. Krill. The Krill papers confirmed everyone's worst fears. The government knew about the aliens, and the aliens had the upper hand. It hardly mattered that John Lear, the retired pilot and son of the business jet pioneer Bill Lear, had long admitted to circulating the Krill text himself, Lear had claimed that his friend John Grace, an Air Force officer then based at Nellis AFB, just north of Las Vegas, wrote this 1988, quote, estimate of the situation based on sincere theories and beliefs regarding alien bases beneath U.S. government installations in Nevada and New Mexico. Upon receiving the Krill Papers, Cooper immediately began claiming he had first read them way back in 1972, supposedly while serving in naval intelligence. Cooper apparently felt no embarrassment when Lear told him the documents had actually been written 16 years later. As Cooper continued spreading this tall tale, notably on Billy Goodman's midnight broadcast on a clear signal heard across the desert west. John Lear has had a curious second career in the late night world of UFO bulletin boards and call-in talk shows, but he has more or less consistently maintained that the Krill papers reflect the bizarre truth and are not a hoax. The only joke Lear has written on the above-top-secret website is in the name. In the 1950s, it was rumored that an alien pilot held by the U.S. military was known as Krill. C-R-L-L-L, because these aliens apparently lack vowels in their names. The initials O-H meant nothing in particular... Although internet sleuths have since decided that OH stands for Original Hostage. If the grill papers have a familiar feel today, it's because they fed the paranoid mythology that has become modern American culture, modern American folk religion. 
Let me read to you from the estimate of the situation. Craft from other worlds have crashed on Earth. Alien craft are both from ultra-dimensional sources and sources within this dimension. Early U.S. government efforts at acquiring alien technology were successful. The U.S. government has had live alien hostages at some point in time. The government has conducted autopsies on alien cadavers. U.S. intelligence agencies, security agencies, and public agencies are involved in the cover-up of facts pertaining to the situation. People have been and are currently being abducted, mutilated, murdered, and kidnapped as a result of the UFO situation. There is a current active alien presence among us on this planet which controls different elements of our society. Alien forces maintain bases on Earth and on the Moon. Millions of cattle have been killed in the process of acquiring biological materials. Why don't they just go to Stater Brothers, you know? Right over to the butcher counter. Nobody looked twice. And finally, the U.S. government has had a working relationship with alien forces for some time with the express purpose of gaining technology and gravitational propulsion, beam weaponry, and mind control. This is Desert Oracle Radio. I'm your host, Ken Lane. In the past week, we got some great news from the Nevada Desert Wilderness. And on the line with us to discuss this is one of the people who very much made it possible for us to get some good news in this department this week. It is the Nevada State Director of the Center for Biological Diversity, Patrick Donnelly. Patrick, welcome to Desert Oracle Radio. Thanks so much for having me, Ken. It's it's an honor. We love to talk to you about the work you do out there. And before you disappear into the wilderness for a well-deserved break, can you give us a, a quick description of, of what happened in Congress and how the, the military finally got its hands slapped? Yeah, well, uh, Desert National Wildlife Refuge is one of the most pristine and intact Mojave Desert ecosystems across the Mojave. It is uh, 1.6 million acres of uh, the largest wildlife refuge in the lower 48, just north of Las Vegas, and it's, it's really a crown jewel of public lands in Nevada. And adjacent to it is the Nevada Test and Training Range, uh, the Air Force's premier bombing range and training uh, warfare exercise area. And the military, uh, for several years, has been pursuing doggedly a massive expansion of this bombing range, uh, proposing to take over two-thirds of the desert refuge, some 1.1 million acres, to drop bombs on and build runways, conduct irregular warfare exercises, build fences, radio towers, 
and, you know, completely desecrate one of the most pristine wildernesses in the desert southwest. And a vibrant and dynamic and, and forceful coalition emerged to fight this. You know, environmentalists, of course, but Native American tribes played a, played a huge role. Veterans groups, even the uh, outdoor business types got involved. And the culmination of, you know, years of effort was last week when the final National Defense Authorization Act, the military funding bill, came out and you know it's not so great that we gave the military three quarters of a trillion dollars but the good side of of that bill is that there was no expansion in the bill for the air force and they had spent years uh, gunning for an expansion in this national defense authorization act this year so it was a thrilling victory um after years of struggle and frankly years of thinking we were going to lose and it was just a question of how bad so good cause to celebrate in the nevada desert in the past week Now, this refuge, a lot of people, even desert people, are unfamiliar with the variety of habitats and and the extreme variety of elevation, too. Can you tell us a couple of the creatures that we find up there and that have refuge from not just the military, but from the encroaching uh, suburbia of Vegas there? Yeah, well, the Desert Refuge was designated in 1934 by President Franklin Delano Roosevelt to protect one of the biggest and most robust bighorn sheep herds in the desert southwest. Uh, At that time, there were an estimated 1,200 bighorn sheep or more on the refuge um, due to climate change and the uh, bacterial pneumonia and other factors. There's now about 400 bighorn sheep on the desert refuge, but that still makes it one of the largest herds in the desert southwest. You know, you're talking about the the sheep range is the heart of the refuge. It's a mountain range that gets up to 10,000 feet. Uh, There's Ponderosa Pine Forest up on top. There are bristlecone, you know, it is it is a beautiful high elevation kind of wonderland. There's a mule deer herd up on top as well. And uh, the lower elevations of the desert refuge are prime desert tortoise habitat. Of course, our beloved threatened desert tortoise finds refuge uh, at the desert refuge in all of the valleys. And because the desert refuge has been protected for such a long time, it's just remarkably intact. There's very little evidence from mining, for instance, which you have all over uh, both the California and Nevada deserts. Very little evidence of mining uh, on the Desert Refuge, which really means there's very few roads. And, you know, bighorn sheep especially thrive the most in pristine wildernesses. And so that's why protecting the Desert Refuge is just so critical, because you start building roads, you start building runways, and you really you ruin something that can't be replaced. Now, those of us who live in the Southwest and love it, we've gotten kind of used to it over the decades that when the military says, gimme, the U.S. government kind of bends over. What do you what What do you think was the, the real factor here? Was it the coalition that kind of shook them or institutional weakness or i think there's a whole variety of factors and certainly you know we were cognizant of the fact that most of the time when you go up against the military you lose and you don't need to look much further than the california desert for evidence of that fort Irwin expanded 29 palms military base expanded and took over an off-highway vehicle area expansions have happened and people you know the environmental community and others have been rolled by the military and so we we really thought that was what was going to happen You know, there's a variety of factors. I think the tribal involvement was huge. Uh, The Desert Refuge is the traditional homeland of the Moapa Band of Paiutes, the Las Vegas Band of Paiutes, and others. And they were very active. You know, we had a lobbying trip to D.C. We had tribal leadership come with us. They wrote op-eds. 
they were in the forefront on this campaign as much as anyone else. And I think that was a huge factor. You know, I think the veterans getting involved made a very compelling case. But you can't discount the relevance of the pandemic as well. I think everyone's been massively distracted over the past uh, year by the pandemic, almost approaching a year. And in some ways, that was to our advantage, I think. And I hate to say that, but I'm just trying to give you the political analysis here that there was a large hue and cry about the military taking over a wildlife refuge. And my impression of people in D.C. when we went to the Hill to lobby was they don't want a headache from a bunch of Nevadans freaking out about a wildlife refuge getting taken over. Some congressman from Connecticut, you know, doesn't want to be getting nasty emails about voting in favor of destroying a Nevada wildlife refuge because what do they care? It's, you know, it's not something they want to take heat over. Did that then just get exacerbated during the pandemic because everyone's so distracted, you know, perhaps. So you can never tease apart all the reasons, but um, I think there were a number of factors that led to this victory. Now, a couple of years ago, when the threat of this takeover seemed to be, it seemed like it was going in the direction these things always go in, you and I talked about going to some secret spot up there that I don't want to give away on the on the radio, but that's protected and that's still there now, right? Absolutely. There are there are several secret spots uh, out there in the desert refuge, some cool little montane ecosystems tucked away into canyons, uh, some relics of the distant human past, a uh, tremendous amount of archaeological sites, uh, beautiful petroglyph panels. And this fantastic valley, the heart of the refuge, is called Desert Valley, which contains a beautiful sand dune formation. And so, you know, all those special areas, all those secret spots, this is really some country that, you know, kind of only some only desert rats can love this country. It's hard to get to. It's mostly four wheel drive roads, long, bumpy access to get to the cool stuff. And, you know, uh, it's there forever, we hope. Uh, as a wildlife refuge. And, you know, there's every reason to think the military will be back. Um, The military industrial complex isn't going anywhere. Uh, The growth of that industrial complex entails a desire to continue growing and growing and fighting wars across the world, right? And so we don't think we're done with this fight. We will be ready for when the military comes back because uh, the coalition that was built, the energy that was built around saving the desert refuge also isn't going anywhere. Well, good. Well, I'm glad we got a a victory. It's nice to get a victory now and then. I mean, we've even had some during these past four years in the the California and Southwestern deserts and uh, land and water conservation bill funding and things like that. So there's there's sunlight here and there. I hope in the spring when we can travel, I hope that uh, you can break away on a little work trip and go up there and let me follow you and take some pictures because I've been... Especially this year. I've been dreaming of that place. Absolutely. Well, now that we've uh, hopefully saved it for future generations, I would be happy to show you around. And, you know, folks, when they come to Las Vegas, it's right in Las Vegas's backyard. Corn Springs is where the visitor center is, and that's a 40-minute drive from the Strip. And there's a beautiful riparian area there and great birding. And, you know, while a lot of the refuge is rugged and inaccessible, Corn Springs is is available for everyone to go visit. And uh, would encourage folks to do so because, you know, the only way we continue to protect and treasure these gems is if everyone everyone loves them and believes in them. So that's my pitch for the Desert Refuge. 
Well, that's a good pitch. Uh, I will link Center for Biological Diversity on the website, but can you tell me the website? Uh, Biologicaldiversity.org. All right, Patrick, you have a well-earned break in the, uh, I'm not even going to say where, so they can't track you down and give you some papers to look at, but have a good time in the wilderness. You deserve it. Thanks for watching out for Nevada, and you're going to be in the pages of the next issue of Desert Oracle, aren't you? Uh, well, I, I have been made a generous offer by uh, by the radio host here to uh, to include some of my words in the Desert Oracle, and I'd, I'd certainly be honored for that to happen. Uh, Ken, you know, you're making some of the most uh, incredible and uh, what I believe to be enduring art in the Desert Southwest right now. And, um, you know, what Desert Oracle is doing is kind of, I think, changing perceptions of the desert around the Southwest. So, so thank you for what you do. and across the great Mojave wilderness. This is Desert Oracle Radio broadcasting from Joshua Tree from our home station KCDZ 107.7 FM in the high desert. With custom soundscapes by our own red, blue, black, silver. Not everybody's in the high desert, thank God. It'd be a bit crowded. And in addition to being on several fine West Coast independent radio stations, you can listen to us on the podcast, which is a podcast of this broadcast. Get it wherever you get podcasts. Speaking of getting things, the first part of the show tonight is from our new hardcover book, Desert Oracle Volume 1. It's out now. You can get it all over the place. Here in the high desert, you can pick one up at Pioneer Town General Store. That's in Pioneer Town. And it's going to be in all of our usual shops up here as the books come in. Thanks to everybody who ordered it online, pre-ordered it from your local bookstore. We sure do appreciate it. I hope you like it. I think it's... uh... I'm going to pronounce it a successful endeavor. It feels good. It looks good. Something to hold on to. Hey, thanks to our guest, Patrick Donnelly, the Nevada State Director of the Center for Biological Diversity, talking about the Desert National Wildlife Refuge. A victory for our side. We'll be back next week, and don't forget, we always have a Christmas show. 
Thanks for listening tonight. Enjoy yourself wherever you are. Hold on, there's there's sunlight ahead. And good night from the voice of the desert. <laughs> <laughs>